At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Today we're going to be in part two of our study of 2 Corinthians, looking at chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. But before we look at those verses, I want to just remind us for a moment of what the Apostle Paul, the author of the book of 2 Corinthians, what the Apostle Paul did for a living, what he did for a living when he wasn't planting churches. Anybody know? What did he do? He was a... He was a tent maker. That's right. He was a tent maker. And we know this not just because of legend, but we know this because of what is said in the scripture. We look at Acts chapter 18, where Paul was in what city? Where Paul was in Corinth. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila that was a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And so in the city of Corinth, there was this little tent shop run by Paul and Aquila and Priscilla. That would be kind of cool to go to Paul's tent shop. But Paul was someone who made a living by making tents. And so it got me thinking about tents this week. And I just want to know, how many of you enjoy tent camping? If you enjoy tent camping, raise your hand. Okay, many hands have gone up. How many of you enjoy coming home from tent camping? More hands just went up. I just want you to know, we're getting more comfortable with this concept. Uh, That's the way I am. I I like to tent camp, but I like to come home from tent camping. Why? Because my king bed is really hard to fit in a backpack. And the climate-controlled environment of my home cannot be replicated on a hillside anywhere. And so, you know, there are things that we enjoy about the portability of a tent and the flexibility of our arrangements, but ultimately, we are glad when we get the upgrade of our return home. Friends, I share this with you today because we're going to be looking at some verses in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians where the tent maker Paul is going to take this analogy of a tent and communicate a great truth for us about the bodies that we now have, and particularly about facing death. So this morning, we're going to look at part two of this series, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, as we'll see something about the issue of death against the example of a tent. So if you've got a Bible, take it out and turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5. I want to read these 10 verses, and then we'll make a couple of observations before we share in the Lord's table together this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 begins this way. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal might be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. 
Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so, friends, I I want us to look at these 10 verses today and see two things that might help us endure even through the challenge and the enemy of death. Well, what are those things? The first thing I want us to see is this. There's an opportunity for us to deal death a fatal blow. Dealing death a fatal blow. We see this in the first eight verses of chapter 5. Now, the first thing that we see about death is that death is inevitable. Death is inevitable. If Christ does not return, at some point we will die. That is a reality. It's a, a, a difficult and stubborn statistic. One out of one people die. And that will include you and that will include me if Christ does not return before the end of our days. This is a point that does not take a whole lot of illustration, but I just want to ask the question, how many of you have a loved one who has passed away in the last 12 months? Just show of hands. How many of you have a loved one who has passed away in the last 24 months? 36 months. Many, many hands up around the room. Death is inevitable. It is something that we will all taste. Now, when we think of death, where do we see that inside of the passage? Well, remember what we saw last week. Last week, we saw the Apostle Paul talk about our bodies and say our outer self is wasting away. We experience physical challenges with our health and physical problems inside of this world because it was never built to last forever. We, we go beyond this and we, we think about what he says, though, in chapter 5, verse 1, when he says, For we know that if this tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, our outer self was wasting away here, but it goes all the way to being destroyed in chapter 5, verse 1. That escalated quickly. But we see the challenge and the the, the difficulties of living in this world. Death is inevitable. Now, this idea of death being inevitable is further underlined by this example of a tent. Paul here talks and he says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed. Now, what is a tent? A tent is a portable, temporary dwelling. That's what it is. It's a portable, temporary dwelling. It allows us to go places and see things we would not go and see otherwise. But ultimately, we won't live in it forever. Ultimately, it will begin to break down even faster than other things and places where we might live. It'll get a a hole in the side. It'll begin to leak. Tents are, are temporary and they are portable. And what Paul does here in chapter 5 is he reminds us that our bodies are like tents. The body that we have is temporary and portable. It is where we are living and what we are living in as we live out our lives on this earth. But we will not stay in this body forever. That is what he's getting at here. 
Now, this idea of our bodies as a tent is something that has connection in other places in Scripture, including in John chapter 1, verse 14, where it is talking about Jesus and says, And the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, it's not fully evident in English, but this word here, dwelt, is the same root word from which we get the word tent, or in, in Hebrew, really the idea of to tabernacle. What John was reminding us of in John 1 is that Jesus took on the tent of an earthly body so that he might come in a portable way from heaven to earth, and, but, but ultimately have a body that would, that would be able to die on the cross for our sins. And so we see this idea of a, a tent. Our body is a tent. It is portable, but it is temporary. It's interesting what Paul would say in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, when he's talking about the end of his life. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Now, this word departure, it's interesting. In other ancient works in Greek, this word is used for breaking down camp for breaking down camp, for putting the tent back in the backpack. This word is used. Paul is here talking about our lives are like a tent, and the end of our lives, our death, are when that tent gets folded up and put in the bag as we move on to the next place the Lord has for us. See, friends, death is inevitable. Our bodies are like a tent. They will not be around in this form forever. But not only do we see that death is inevitable, but we also are reminded in this that death is not the end. See, if our bodies are like a tent, it ultimately gets folded up and put away, but we go on to something else. And if we are in Christ, then the trade-off from this life to the life to come is a massive, unparalleled upgrade from a tent to a mansion. This is what Paul says. He says that right now we live in a tent that is earthly, that is, is made by hands, but he says we are headed towards a house, a mansion that God has prepared in the heavens. It is an upgrade in every single way. This is what God has promised us. And not only that, but this upgrade that God has created is something that we, 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 we groan and long for knowing that when we put it on, we will be in our, our heavenly dwelling. The body we have now will be upgraded to something far superior, and we can't wait. You know, for whatever reason, when I read these verses, I was thinking of, of fashion this last week. And I was thinking about how in our lives, there are things that we wear at one point in our life that we kind of groan that we ever wore it. Is that, is that true for you? I once had parachute pants. True story. I had them. I groaned over the fact that I one day had parachute pants. Um, I, I don't have them any longer. They're no longer in style. And that particular pair absolutely positively does not fit me in this stage of my life. I groan about the past. But, but not just do I groan about the past, but I long for things that are in style. I long for things that would allow me to fit in. I long for things that won't be dated in just a few moments. And when we think about what the Lord has done for us, 
The Lord is taking this body that will be out of style in eternity and he is putting it away for good and he's replacing it with a fashion that will go on forever and ever and never leave style. So we groan for where we are, but we long for where we're headed. This is what God has done for us in Christ. Now, not only do we see this, but we see Paul using a variety of metaphors to talk about what awaits us in death. And so if you are here today and you have trusted in Christ, we're talking about metaphors that would describe what awaits us in death. And if you have a loved one who has gone before you in Christ, who has passed away, whether it's in the last one to three years or many years ago, if they know Christ, then these things are true of them in this moment right now today. So what are these metaphors that, that Paul uses? Well, the first he says is, if we are in Christ, in death we are not homeless. We're not homeless. We saw this, that we exchange this earth tent of a body for a building that is from God. In eternity, we are not homeless. From the moment we die here, we leave this tent of a body and we have a new home in heaven. We are never homeless. We are never disembodied spirits. But if we have trusted in Christ, we have a home in heaven. We have a body awaiting us. Not only this, but he uses another analogy, that of being naked. If we are in Christ, then we are not naked at the moment of death. He says, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Paul says that he is longing not just to get rid of this life. He's not in a hurry to get ahead of God on that matter. But what he says, I long for the day when life will swallow up the tent that I'm in right now. When God will, will clothe me further in his glory and in his righteousness. A little later on in a couple of weeks, we're going to see at the end of chapter 5, where he says that if we are in Christ, we are clothed in his righteousness. And so, friends, we are reminded that in death, we are not, not just not homeless, but in death, we are not naked. We are clothed in Christ. And furthermore, not only are we just not homeless and naked, but we're also not alone. We're not alone. If we know Christ from the moment we leave this life, we are in the presence of God himself. We see our Savior face to face, this is what he says. He says, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Paul says, I, I can't wait for the other side because I will see Jesus face to face. These three metaphors, these three analogies all talk about God's provision for us in eternity. We won't be homeless. We won't be naked. We won't be alone. God has provided for us in death in amazing, amazing ways. And he's guaranteed that promise. That's, that's quite a promise, but he's guaranteed it. Look at what he says in 2 Corinthians 5.5. 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. God has prepared us for this greatness in eternity. He has promised this to us, and he has given us the Holy Spirit now as a guarantee of what is to come. 
This is exactly what he says in Ephesians 1 when he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It was back on January the 16th, uh, 1996, that I got down on one knee and I asked Kimberly Atwater if she would be my wife. And she said, yes. You were nervous for a second, weren't you? Uh, she, she said yes. Now, when she said yes, you know what I did? I pulled out a ring and I slid that ring on her finger. And, and what did that ring represent? That ring represented the promise. It was a guarantee that I was going to follow through with my commitment to marry her. That some seven months later, we, we would not just be engaged, but we would be married by the grace of God. That, that was a promise that was made. And this same language is really what we see with the giving of the Holy Spirit. From the moment of our belief, God sends his spirit to live within our souls, not just to guide us to truth and not just to empower us for righteousness. It is for those reasons and not just to enable us to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. It certainly is for that as well. But another aspect of the gift of the Holy Spirit is to remind us of what is to come. It's an engagement ring from God who will not leave us at the altar. God has promised, he has promised to provide for us in eternity. And we see that and we see evidence of that even through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Amen? And so we see that God has guaranteed this promise. Now, I mentioned at the beginning of of this section of the message that that death is dealt a, a fatal blow. But I want to see, I want, I want you to see how Paul celebrates this in verses 6 to 8. In verses 6 to 8, he says, we are always of good courage. We are of good courage. How can we be of good courage even in the face of death? How can we be of good courage in, in light of the fact that there is an inevitability of death out there? Well, friends, we've been reminded of it in these first several verses. We can be of good courage even in the face of death because of what God will provide for us on the other side of the grave. It is not the end. It is only the beginning of true life itself. And so Paul reminds us, we walk by faith and not by sight. By sight, death looks like the end. By sight, death looks like defeat. But for the Christian, we look even upon death and see in it the hope of eternity because of what God has promised. We live by faith in that reality. So how do we begin to apply this truth to our lives? I, I, w- I want to share a variety of thoughts that would help us to, to take these, these verses and begin to internalize them in some way. The, the first thing I would say is trust in Jesus. In light of the fact that those who are in Christ, though they die, yet they will live. In light of the fact that if we have trusted in Christ, there is a waiting for us an upgrade from a tent to a mansion. I implore you to trust in Christ today while you have time. For, for many of us in the room today, this is something that, that we have already decided at some point. The Lord has pursued us. We have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. We have repented of our ways. We are following him in faith. And today we are just reminded of the, the, the reward, the payoff of, of, of what is awaiting us in eternity. 
But for others who are here today who have never placed your faith and trust in Christ, know that the confidence to face death does not exist for those who have not trusted in Christ. See, if we have not trusted in Christ, then death is the judgment day. It's the moment where we will have to give an account for our own sin and failures. And if we've got any sin, we can't be connected to a holy God forever. And so we are on our own. And that will lead to a separation from God, not an upgrade. But it will, it will lead to difficulty and challenge and punishment forever. Friends, while we have time, in light of what is to come, May we trust in Christ. And if this morning, as I'm sharing these words, God is stirring within your heart, believe me, that is not me preaching. That is the Spirit of God drawing you to himself. May this morning, as, as God is drawing you to himself, that you would complete that action by embracing by faith, repenting of your sins, and following Christ forever. So the first thing is to trust in Jesus. But the second thing that I think about is this. Death is no terror for the Christian. Death is no terror for the Christian. Now, what is it that could cause a Christian to be faithful all the way to the end, even in the face of martyrdom? Whether that is Stephen on the pages of Scripture, or whether that is believers who are in the world today right now who are facing persecution and, and, and martyrdom. How is it that Christians can sing unto the grave? How can we do that? Well, we do that by remembering the truth of 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10. Death is no terror for the Christian. This, this enemy, this, this thousand-pound gorilla that is tearing up the world around us, King Kong of an enemy, Jesus defeated at the cross and made a way for us to have victory over death as well. Jesus is allowing us to share in his victory so we might be able to stand firm and stand strong even when our health fails or even when martyrdom is threatened. The worst someone could do is kill us. And what happens after death? We're with Jesus. And so there is victory even in the face of the biggest enemies of our day. Third thing, because of these verses, we were reminded that we will find what we are looking for. We'll find what we're looking for. Now, if those words sound uh, familiar to you, that's because I borrowed them from you too, uh, who in the mid-'80s uh, said this. But there are things that go out of style, and then there's you too. They don't go out of style. So um, and they, they have this wonderful song that says this. It says, I have climbed highest mountains. I have run through the fields only to be with you. I have run, I have crawled, I have scaled these city walls only to be with you, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Our lives are, 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 are searches, aren't they? In so many ways, we are looking for something that will satisfy our souls. We are, we are pursuing relationships and achievements that would somehow fill us up. And ultimately, they never quite do. But in eternity, when we see Christ face to face, we find that which was, we were designed for. I love what C.S. Lewis says in The Problem of Pain. He says, There have been times when I think that we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. It is the secret signature of each soul. 
the incommunicable and unappeasable want, the thing we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work, in which we shall still desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. Friends, we find what we are looking for in Christ. We find what we are looking for in eternity. And then, I just want to remind us again of the courage that comes from knowing the victory that Christ won over death. I, I love what Paul said to the Corinthians in chapter 15 of the first letter he wrote them. It says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? There is encouragement, friends, in these verses as we remember this truth that death has been dealt a fatal blow. But there's a second truth that I want us to see here, second thing that is important for us to remember. And that is this, the relational implications of life after death. The relational implications of life after death. Notice how Paul will describe the experience of eternity. He says that we are of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now, this sounds very similar to what Paul said, reflecting on his death, whether he would stay here in this life or or go to be with Jesus in Philippians 1, when he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Jesus, for that is far better. So, for Paul, when he looked forward to life after death, what did it signify? What was the the, the cornerstone of it? What was the, the substance of it? It was not gold streets and it was not pearly gates, but ultimately it was Jesus himself that who he would see and live in fellowship with face to face. And in light of what we saw earlier, that the chief thing was not the clothing and the chief thing was not the house. The chief thing was that he would not be alone, but he would be with Jesus forever. Now, this is something that we saw last year in our study of Revelation when our friend Jim Hamilton told us this. Is, is this the way that you think about heaven? If you found out that God and Jesus weren't going to be in heaven, but the street would still be gold and the gates pearl and the walls jasper and the water living and the trees leaves healing and all your dearly departed there, but Jesus and the Father would not be there, would you still want to go? If you hesitate at all, please recognize that heaven without Jesus and the Father would be nothing less than a gold-plated hell. Jesus and the Father are heaven, and that is no less true now than it will be then. Friends, we need to be reminded that when we think of life after death, it is life with Jesus. We will see him face to face. And when we see Jesus face to face, there will be some relational implications of that meetup. Because we will see the one that we have called not only our Savior, but also our Lord, and we will have to give an account for our lives. Now, giving an account for our lives is something that was common in the ancient world, and there was something called a bema. And a bema is, this is a Greek word that just basically means a high place. And so in various cities in the, the Roman world, there would be a high place where someone would come and sit upon that high place and pronounce judgments upon the lives of others and, and different concerns that were brought before their attention. Paul himself was brought before such a Bama seat in the city of Corinth. 
when he stood trial under this man named Gallio. It says, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the state where Corinth was, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and they brought him before the tribunal. So Paul was used to being brought before the tribunal and the Corinthians had seen Paul brought before this court in their city. But what Paul does in these verses is he reminds us that on the other side of the grave, we will stand before another Bema. But this will not be the Bema or the tribunal of Gallio. It will be the Bema or the judgment seat, same word, of Jesus. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Friends, we will all stand before Christ one day. There is a relational implication of life after death. We do not hide out in this life, do whatever we want, and never have to give an account for our lives to Jesus. But in eternity, we will see Jesus face to face, and we will give an account for our lives. We will appear before his high place and give an account for our lives. Because of that, Paul says, knowing that's coming, I make it my aim, I make it my ambition, I organize my life to please Christ now, knowing that I will see him then. That's what Paul says. Because he knows that each of us will receive what is due, what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, friends, when we think about that, Aspect. I want to remind us of a couple of things. The first thing I want to remind us of is that when we stand before Christ, if we have trusted in him for the forgiveness of sins, what has happened to the payment that our sins deserve? It has been forgiven in Christ. That, that price has been paid. This is what Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So with enthusiasm we await the day when we will stand before the one who could judge us and instead he chooses to save us if we have trusted in him amen so this is what we are headed towards and yet we still will give an account for our lives so how do we make sense of that section of these verses well i really think that what samuel hoyt says is helpful he says the judgment seat of christ might be compared to a commencement ceremony at graduation, there is some measure of disappointment and remorse that one did not do better and work harder. However, at such an event, the overwhelming emotion is joy and not remorse. The graduates do not leave the auditorium weeping because they did not earn better grades. Rather, they are thankful that they have been graduated, and they are grateful for what they did achieve. To overdo the sorrow aspect of the judgment seat of Christ is to make heaven hell. But to underdo the sorrow aspect is to make faithfulness inconsequential. Friends, may we not fall into either camp. May we, we not just focus on judgment because in Christ there is no condemnation. But let us also realize that we will give an account for our lives. So let us be faithful and obedient even today. So a couple of ways that we might seek to apply Jesus being both our Savior and our Lord. The first, I would say this, are you ambitious in your spiritual life? Are you ambitious in your spiritual life? In light of what is to come, in light of the fact that he would see Jesus, his Savior and Lord, face to face, the Apostle Paul said he makes it his aim to please him. 
Other translations appropriately translate that not aim, but ambition. He makes it his ambition to please him. He puts effort into it. He puts work into it. He organizes his life. He puts thought into it. He really wants his life to be found faithful to Christ. And so he is running his life through the grid of, is this the way that Jesus wants me to live? Now, friends, we are used to having our lives organized by different things. Sometimes we organize our lives based on our physical health. We organize our lives around it. So we, we make plans to exercise or to eat healthy. We, we make it our ambition to be healthy. If we have children, we, we make it our ambition for them to have all of these experiences, to, to play in all of these tournaments and to compete in all of these events and to receive the, the finest of educations. We make it our ambition. We, we, we organize around those things. We pour into it. But let me ask you, do we also make it our ambition to honor God with our lives? Do we live making it our aim to please him? If, it, if, if, it, if we did, we would find ourselves reading the scripture, not just to check a box and say we did it, but so that we could get to know the Lord and know what he's calling us to do and then following him in obedience. We would spend time on our knees in prayer because we would understand that we are called to be dependent upon him and he wants to, to work within our lives. We would, we would find gatherings with other believers, something that we didn't miss because there were opportunities for us to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ and to serve those around us and to worship God together as a part of our regular rhythm. We, we would be serious about sharing the word of God with the lost around us and taking the word of God to, to people on the other side of the world that have never heard the gospel because this is a message too important to keep to ourselves and Jesus has commanded us to go and to share it with all around us. Friends, are we making it our ambition to please him? Or are we making it our ambition to walk away from our temptation and our addiction and remain faithful to him? Husbands, are we making it our ambition to love our wives as Christ loved the church and stay committed to those relationships and not walking away from them? Parents, are we loving our children and raising them up and training them up in the way of the Lord? Are we making it our aim to please him by living out our lives in these relationships the way that God would have us to live them out? Are we making it our ambition? Do we have ambition in our spiritual life? We're going to see Christ one day. We'll give an account for our lives then. Therefore, let's make it our aim to follow him now. And a second similar to it, does your future life organize your present behavior? I love what Paul Barnett says, hope for the future, therefore, should not encourage dreamy impracticality in the present, but courage and purpose. And so, friends, as we gather here today, we have been reminded of what is to come. And, and as we are reminded of that, I, I want us to, to respond today by celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And so those who are going to be helping to serve Lord's table, if you would go ahead and move into place here at the front of the room. Um, and, and I want you to just, just to remind us again of, of what we are remembering when we drink of this cup and we eat of this bread together. We're remembering that Christ came for us 
and we're remembering that because he died on the cross and rose from the dead, that we have the hope of life after death. And so Jesus instituted these symbols as these reminders. And he said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So this morning, if you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, you are invited to come forward and participate in the Lord's Supper together with us. If you have not trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, we invite you just to, just to observe what we're doing here today as you see us remembering what Christ has done for us. Now, this morning, as we do this, the ushers will be moving down the middle of the room, inviting you a row at a time to come forward while we sing. And, and as you come forward, you'll come down the middle aisle, and then you'll return to your seats down the outside. Once everyone has been served and we've had a chance to sing together, then we will eat and drink. So at this time, would you join me as we pray? Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you for the life that is found in Christ. Thank you for the hope that we have in him. Thank you that there is no condemnation for those in Christ. Thank you that we have this upgrade awaiting us. And Lord, I pray that you would guide us and, and, and help us even today in light of that reality to not only trust you, but also to follow you, to make it our aim to please you as we await that day to hopefully hear you say, as you told us in the parable, well done, good and faithful servant. We thank you so much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.